The scripture reading today is Ezra chapter 3. When the th seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in it in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required, and after that the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord." From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Serababel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadek, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upward to supervise the word at the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaphs, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord." For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. This is the word of the Lord. Lydia, I could listen to you read the Bible all day long. That was great. Uh, welcome again, if you've just come in. Um, all right. Ezra chapter 3, no big like contextual introduction today. Uh, if you missed the last two weeks, uh, go back and listen to them uh, so you can follow with us. Uh, so many parallels for us in this ancient story and ours. Uh, so much to learn uh, ultimately about Jesus, but also to this kind of wisdom and guidance to gain um, from these ancient exiles as we exile in our time, as we uh, journey as exiles, cling on to hope and uh, in the now and not yet, as we strive to remain faithful to Jesus, remember the identity that He's been given, uh, we've, we've been given in Him. So, 
Um, lots to learn, um, lots to get through today. So um, again, it's a story of the return of the restora- re- return and the restoration of the exiled Jews. They've been scattered in exile because of their disobedience to God, because of their disobedience to uh, the covenant that they made with Him. But even though they're being punished in this way, God still loves them. God is still faithful to them. He's faithful to all the promises that He's made to them. And we see He's been working to bring them home again, and working to bring them back so they can rebuild their temple, their community, their city. Um, last week, which we covered chapter 1 and Chapter 1 announced this, this plan to go and rebuild the temple through Cyrus's edict. Um, God is the one who's behind it all. He's stirring up Cyrus. He's initiating the journey home. Chapter 2 focused on the, the, the response of the people that God has, has stirred in their hearts as well. This is the kind of first wave of returnees who will realize that plan to rebuild the temple. And now here in chapter 3, they're back, and the project commences. Um, it's an exciting moment. That, um, it's, it's very exciting because even in the first two chapters, one of them just being a list of a long list of names. Uh, a lot has been building up to this point. Uh, God has been at work, uh, doing a lot for them. He's been doing everything they, they need to be restored back to the homeland to begin to rebuild again. Um, last week we we kind of noticed how this is a retelling of that first Exodus story. Um, the first Exodus was when God rescued Israel from the, from slavery in Egypt. This is a retelling of that. I love how God retells that story. I love how God remembers that first Exodus story. He actually recalls that event in Jeremiah 31, verse 32, when he says, when I took them by the hand out of the land of Egypt. That, that's how God retells that story and remembers uh, that first Exodus. He did it all. He, he was the strong parent who p- picks his kid up out of danger, brings them uh, to safety. Um, he deserves all the credit. He deserves all the glory. And we see in Exodus chapter 1, in this Exodus story, in Ezra chapter 1, in this Exodus story, the same thing happens. Like God does it all. He, he, it's, it's by his mighty outstretched hand. He is stirring up Cyrus's uh, heart to make this edict. He stirs up his people so they'll respond. He, he gives them exactly what they need, not only to, to return to the homeland, but also to, to rebuild uh, the temple. We didn't really have time to look at that last week, but, but to uproot 43,000 people um, and, and to transplant them back to Judah would have been a feat in and of itself, right? Uh, but also, they have a temple to, to rebuild. Um, how are they going to afford to do that? Uh, what about not just building the structure, but the, the things that go in the temple, those, those vessels of, uh, of worship? Uh, that the temple needed in order to be operable. Those things were stolen when the Babylonians uh, destroyed the first temple. Well, God is going to give those things back. He's going to take care of everything. He is stirring in Cyrus's heart. He arranges for the Babylonian and the Persians to, to give uh, the people of Israel this like leaving party gift, this gold and beasts and, and offerings. Uh, the, the temple vessels that were stolen, Cyrus is going to get those back. He's going to return those as well. It's pretty unbelievable, right? Like God is, he is taking care of every single detail. He is doing everything that they need, everything that they need to accomplish what he's calling them to do. He's giving them to, he's giving it to them. And here they are. They're back, back in Judah, back in the land. Now what? God, God's brought them home. It's time to rebuild. Where do we start? 
Uh, and as always, keep an eye out for, for our parallel, right? Uh, the big idea last week was that Jesus, Jesus is the home away from exile that God is, is calling us to uh, return to. And, and once He does that, now what? And God has done the impossible in our lives because of His great love for us, because of His, His mercy, by grace you've been saved. You've been brought from death to life. He's raised us up with Him and seated us in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. Uh, in Jesus, we have a forever home. Isn't that amazing? But now what? Now where to start? What you see in Ezra chapter 3 is these returned exiles start with worship. And that, that's what we see is this, they're, they're rebuilding their life around worshiping God. That's the big idea of the day is worshiping God in spirit and truth is of primary importance to a fully restored life. Worshiping God in spirit and truth is of primary importance to a fully restored life. Let me pray for us one more time. Um, God, we thank you for doing it all. And we thank you, Lord, we are here because of you, because of what you've done um, ultimately in the, the life, the death, the resurrection of your son Jesus on our behalf, but also stirring in us, Lord. Would you do that more? Would you, would you keep stirring in the lives of our friends and our family more to respond, Lord, more to come to your family um, and show us what life in your kingdom looks like now? Um, teach us this morning, Holy Spirit. Amen. Chapter 3, verse 1, the rebuilding of the temple commences which starts with worship. Um, read from verse 1. Uh, when the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in their towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Um, so that, that gives us a lot of context uh, here on what's happening. Um, so it's been seven months since they've returned to Judah. Um, they've, they've been settling into their respective towns and, and villages and then here in the seventh month, they gather as one unified people in Jerusalem to begin. Um, there's probably, I can think of two, at least two good reasons for that kind of seventh month period. Um, firstly, probably quite understandably, um, you can imagine it would take a little bit of time for 43,000 people to settle into a new land. Um, New homes, there's houses to build, there's jobs to establish. How will they sustain themselves in this new place? Um, I'm sure there's crops to plant, um, businesses to set up. Um, you can imagine the, the, the practical logistics uh, of this return would have been pretty complicated. So seven months at least of settling in to these new lives and new homes probably would have been needed, right? Um, but there's an even more significant reason for gathering to start their work in the seventh month. And that was because the seventh month in the Jewish calendar was the most important month for them. Um, there were three major mandatory celebrations in the, in the seventh month. Um, you can read about those celebrations, those religi religious feasts in Leviticus 23. The, these, these feasts, these celebrations that were commanded by God for His people to, to keep, they're incredibly important. Um, the first one was on the first day of the seventh month. Um, which was the Feast of Trumpets. This was the, the Jewish New Year, if you were going by the, 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 the civil calendar, not the religious one. But the, 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 the Feast of Trumpets was this, this day of solemn rest um, that would begin with this blast of trumpets. That's how their, their year would begin. 
Uh, the 10th day of the seventh month was the Day of Atonement. You've heard of that one. Um, also a day of rest. You can read about that in uh, Leviticus 16. Um, and then lastly, on the 15th day of the seventh month was this, the beginning of this week-long festival of booths. Booties. You guys do this, right? Um, also known as the, the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, where they would build these, these booths. They would build these huts, these little tents, um, where they would, they would live in these tents for a week, and they would, this would kind of be a, a reenactment of their time in the wilderness when they would live in these tents and sojourn to the promised land. And during this time in these tents, they would remember God's provision. They would remember God's sustaining power over them through the wilderness. And this would be this week of rest. That's interesting, isn't it? Why would they choose this seventh month for when they would commence their work? A month that was filled with days of not working. It's, it's a month of deep reflection on all that God had done for them. So before they got to all their doing, it was important first to focus on their being. And there, there's, there's work to do, certainly. There, there's building to do, but let's start with remembering God first. Let, let's, let's start with remembering His work, His provision who we are because of Him. Um, is that true of us? Is that true for you in your life? What's, what's the, 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 the first importance in your life? Being productive? Um, e- even even uh, working, getting to work, even on that, that calling from God that you feel, is that what's most important? Or is it slowing down to remember God? all that He's done, all that we are because of Him, what we see is, is doing is not as important as being. Um, is, the, is the doing important? Certainly. That's why He's brought them here. He's, he's brought them back to rebuild. There, there's work to do. Productivity will be important, but it's not most important. It's not how they start. They, they start work by resting, They start by remembering, by being with God, by remembering His work, by rooting their identity in Him before they begin work. Doing is not as important as being. That's an an interesting start, right? And the timeline of verse 1, I think it's pretty incredible. 43,000 people uprooted, journeyed to a new home, building a new life, settling in, and within seven months, they begin to obey God's commands set out for them in the law of Moses. And it says, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. 43,000 people gathering as one. Um, that beautiful line, it's meant, it's meant for us to, to see the unity that's on display as they gather for worship. Imagine the scene. 43,000 returnees, they don't all live in, in one place, they live in their towns and their villages. In the seventh month, they make their way up to Jerusalem, up to that holy city of David once more, to the temple site. There's no temple there, it's ruins. Um, but up they march, and they ascend as they gather as one. Imagine them singing those old songs of ascent. Uh, that their ancestors would have sung on their journey up to the temple for these same festivals. Psalm 133, one of those songs of ascent about the unity that is on display here. Behold how good and pleasant 
It is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. What a, what, a, what a special, beautiful scene that would have been, right? Just as their forefathers had done in the past, year after year, now after 70 years in exile, they're home, and they're ascending into Jerusalem once again, singing their songs of unity and praise. A little bittersweet this time, because they ascend to ruins. They, they don't ascend to the glory of the temple, but what unity they are experiencing after 70 years of division. It's a beautiful scene, isn't it? The people gathered as one man in Jerusalem. What a beautiful line. Um, And I want to take a moment to think about, again, this specific context that they're in. Uh, They've been living in a foreign land for 70 years. Most of these people returning are the grandchildren of of original exiles. Most of these people were born in exile. Uh, The only life they've ever known is in Babylon. They're, they're returning to a home they've never known. So imagine what that would have been like in real practical ways. And we, we've mentioned the excitement that they must have felt because of those prophetic hopes beginning to come true. But it also would have been scary, right? This isn't a, a modern-day society. Uh, they don't have established local governments and laws and a police force and that, that peace that we just kind of take for granted, Right? It would have been scary to return as these outsiders coming to establish a a home in a strange place, a a new neighborhood with their family, with their children. And you've done that for for seven months. You've moved into a new place. If you've ever moved to a new place, you know it takes longer than seven months to feel at home, right? But they've done their best. They're, They're nervously settling into this new place with new neighbors And now, after a handful of months, it's time to to gather your things again, uh, to bring your family up to Jerusalem for these religious festivals. Think of the the cost that this return would have been. Um, You've uprooted your life, you've uprooted your family, cost a lot. Like Financially, it costs a lot, but God has uh, provided for them, right? But it would have cost... Just the emotional cost, if you've ever moved, you know that, that the practical cost of, of leaving everything you've ever known behind in Babylon. Maybe you had a nice life in Babylon, but it's cost you something to obey that stirring in your heart and to go back to Judah to rebuild. It's been a costly move. You've settled into your new home for seven months, and already you have to leave that new home for a little while to go up to Jerusalem and there's no alarms on their houses. And any neighbors that stayed behind couldn't be trusted because they were supposed to go up to Jerusalem as well. And if you can't, if you can't, trust, if you can't trust them to obey God, to go up what they, and do what they should be doing in these religious feasts, you can't trust them to stay behind and, and not steal your stuff, right? And there's no local police to notify that you'll be away, no patrol cars to circle by every so often. Um, And so when they go to Jerusalem, their newly established homes and and their their towns and their cities will be vacant and they'll be vulnerable. But still they went. And and why did they leave? To obey God. 
Better to obey God and worship Him than to do what you think is safe. Right? Better to obey God and to worship Him than to, to, to do what makes sense in the eyes of the world, like stay home and guard your things. But they go. And when they go to Jerusalem, what do they do? Form an army? Um, take up a collection to hire guards? Go back and look after our stuff? No. Look at what they do in verses 2 and 3. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Jezodak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they build the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. So, so what's the first thing they do? Their, their, their first priority is to erect this, this altar, to build this altar, to put it in place. And what was the altar for? It was for offering burnt offerings to the Lord. This is worship. Um, the, the, their first step, their first priority was get the altar in place so that we can begin to worship God properly again, the way that He's asked us to, the way He set it out in the law of Moses. So worship is their main priority. But why? Why did the... Why did they build the altar first? If you ask any architects or builders, you know the, the first step is the foundation, right? When you're building a building, that's, that's not step one for them. That's step two. First step is get the altar up. Build the altar so that we can begin worshiping again. And again, why? Well, verse three tells us why they did this. It says, they set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. So depending on, on the translation of the Bible that you're reading, it will either say they build the altar even though they feared the surrounding peoples, or it will read they built the altar for or because fear was upon them. So they're either acting out, they're, they're building here in spite of their fear, or they're building because of their fear. Both are intriguing, right? Both, I think, are courageous. The first one especially, building the altar even though they feared. Like, that's some, some pretty courageous obedience. I think I'd like to be like, yeah, I'm that guy. Everything's scary, but we're doing it anyways. But I think the second one is maybe even more relatable. They build the altar so that they can worship because they fear the peoples of the land. They do it because they're scared. They, they've returned home, but they don't feel at home yet. Do you see the parallel for us? God has brought them home, and they're so happy about that, but it doesn't feel totally right yet. They, they, still, they still feel like outsiders. And for us, we found a home in Jesus but we still feel like strangers in this world. Not strangers with God, but strangers and, and outsiders here. This, this place doesn't feel like home. This is the now and not yet. But they've, they've come home. They still don't feel the safety of home. But do you see what they've learned? It, it seems these people, they've learned where safety originates. Safety is not found in numbers. Safety is not found in might. Safety is certainly not available from the idols that people worship. And their idols are the same idols that we worship. Sex, power, 
money. Safety is not found in them. It's only found in in obeying the commands of the one true and living God. Safety is found in obedient worship of the one true and living God. So they build this altar because they're afraid of their threatening neighbors. And what do they do? They, They start offering these sacrifices on the altar day and night. What a strange way to act if you feel in danger. Why aren't they protecting themselves? Why aren't they trying to protect their homes and their, their, their wives and their children? They actually are. These, return, these returnees have had their spirits stirred up by God. They seem to have learned from Israel's history. All those attempts to rely on the power of man have failed. All those attempts to rely on the arm of the flesh to get help from Egypt, to get help from Assyria or Babylon, that all led to what? The temple being burned down. All that reliance on man rather than God had gotten them driven into exile. It seems these returned exiles have learned what they can and cannot trust. Their trust must be in God rather than in man. Building an altar. What, what an interesting first priority when they feared for their safety. Why not start with the wall, <laughs> right? You ever wondered that? Why not build the wall first if they feel in danger? No, that's not where true safety lies. A, a wall will not bring lasting protection. Safety is only found in obedient worship of the one true and living God. Do you believe this? Does our church believe this? That that there is only one who can truly protect. There's only one who can guarantee your safety. There's only one who can ensure your well-being. There's only one true and living God, and there is none beside Him. And even if you do die in His service, your blood will be well spent. You'll be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And on the last day, your body will be raised and you will reign with Him forever. So with Him, you have a guarantee of future glory So I'll ask you again, do you feel like an exile? As a Christian, do you feel like an outsider? Like you're living in a foreign land? Do you ever feel uneasy? Maybe even fearful? Be honest. Maybe it's it's fear because of like intimidation of of a secular culture. That's a real one, right? It's easy to kind of think back and think, and they would have just had it so easy. You know, they, the, the same intimidation from a new secular culture would have existed for them. And here they are trying to remain faithful to their God, faithful, walk in His ways. Do you ever feel that way? Maybe it's a more spiritual fear, the, the kind of fiery darts the devil is firing your way, the, the spiritual, spiritually devastating poison that the culture offers as pleasure. Do you ever feel that danger, that, that fear that comes from the war that wages around you? How do you remain faithful to, to God's ways in this culture? And if you're honest and you've said, yeah, I feel fearful at times in that way, well, Firstly, the the simple biblical response is, with God on your side, you don't need to fear, but I'll be honest, I get it. 
I, I think it's, it's normal to feel that way. But please learn from these exiles here. The proper response to intimidation, to danger, to fear, to temptation is worship. To be worshiping God is the proper response. When you respond to danger by worshiping, you not only declare, you celebrate God's power to protect you. When you respond to intimidation by worshiping God, you brandish God's truth, which overcomes the lies and the insinuations of the enemy. When you respond to temptation by worshiping, you relish in the satisfaction that only God gives, of which is that temptation is just a cheap imitation of. Christian, do you fear? Worship God. The exiles have come back to the land, and the first thing Ezra portrays them as doing is rebuilding the altar so that they can worship Yahweh. It has significant precedence. Remember, we said this is a story that's pointing backwards. Um, it, it's, it's, they're rooting themselves in history, and that's what's happening here with the, the building of this altar too. Um, back in Genesis chapter 12, I think it's on the screen, as soon as God appeared to Abram, um, in verse 7, it says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So there's this promise of this land. And what does Abram do? He builds an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So these returned exiles, they see themselves as the offspring of Abraham. They see themselves as the heir to the promise that God made to Abraham. And they follow in his footsteps and they connect themselves to Abraham. They, they connect themselves to those promises made by God by building an altar just as Abraham did. That they're actually following in the footsteps of their ancestors through this text by building this altar, and they're establishing these rhythms of worship. That's their first priority. The end of chapter, uh, verse 3 tells us about the resumption of the, the daily morning and evening sacrifice. Uh, verse 4 tells us they renewed the, the celebration of those festivals, those religious feasts that God had set out. Think of these as, it's a liturgical calendar, right? Where the, these, this, this set of uh, celebrations that God has said, do these, and they're going to help you remember me. And did you notice in the, in the text, they're, they're not coming up with new ways of worship. Hey, we're back. Let's create something new. Here's some new ideas. No, their, their, their priority is to have biblical worship. Verse 3, they built altar and burnt offerings as it is written in the law of Moses. Verse 4, they kept the feast of booths as it is written. Their priority is, is not to create something new, but it's to be rooted in God's word, to, to worship Him just as He's asked them to worship Him. This is, this is biblical worship. Biblical worship is their number one priority. Even before they order the supplies for the temple rebuild, let's start with worship. Um, I, I've got to say I'm impressed with uh, Joshua and Zerubbabel. Um, I think they have the right leaders in place uh, for what they're, they're being called to do, right? Again, what's their main objective given to them by Cyrus? Go rebuild the temple but it seems these leaders have recognized that the actual rebuild project is not their first objective. Their first objective is how do we help these returned exiles remember and maintain their identity? Like it seems they've learned from Israel's past mistakes, that past unfaithfulness. 
It seems they've, they've realized that their first task is how are we going to help these people maintain their identity, remember their identity as the people of God? That they're terrified, that they're fearful of these people in the surrounding places. And when you look back on Israel's history, it's when they begin to fear that things go terribly wrong, right? The foot of the mountain of uh, Mount Sinai, terrified. What do we do? Build, an, build a golden calf. Fear leads to them seeking these alliances with Egypt and Assyria and Babylon. Fear leads Abraham to she's not my wife, it's my sister. Like this fear leads to disastrous things. And here they are again, but this time, how are they going to help them, help these fearful exiles remember and maintain their identity? They begin by focusing on rhythms of worship. And the, the Feast of Booths is the first one mentioned. I mentioned it already, but remember Ezra is he's retelling the Exodus story. The king's spirit has been stirred. The Babylonians have been plundered. The returnees have been numbered as they march on to the land. And ever since that first exodus, Israel has been celebrating this festival of booths to commemorate the way that God had provided for them in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And now, in this, after their second exodus has begun, they celebrate that festival again. again. And when they do this, they're not only celebrating God's provision and protection in the sojourn of the land in the first exodus, but also in the one they had just experienced. Think of what they've just been through and how sweet and special this celebration of booths must have been. Israel has been celebrating this feast of booths for generations and generations, but how sweet was this one? That they just experienced their own Exodus, this new exodus, and God is bringing them back to the land, and so how vivid is this celebration of booths? How sweet, how celebratory it would have been. But these, these rhythms of worship, they, they help them remember who God is and who they are with Him. That, that's the point of these celebrations, these feasts, they are powerful worldview builders for Israel. Our worldview, it consists of, of what we're taught. That's called dogma. It consists of the, the story that, that you believe about the world, the story that makes sense of what you've been taught. That's called narrative. And then you have these symbols that, that commemorate what you've been taught. These, these memorials that celebrate the truths of your dogma and the sweep of the narrative in which they make sense. Hang with me. And then all of these come together in the way that they worship, their liturgy. This is the order of worship. I'll give you the example. In this case, the narrative, that they're, 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 the story that they're telling is God's provision for Israel in the wilderness. And that became the, the truth, the dogma, that was symbolically reenacted every year at the Festival of Booths. And this was built into their liturgy. This was their, their, their order of worship year after year. And they practiced this liturgy every year mixing these ingredients all together, simmering on the stove year after year, and this produced this powerful concoction, which was a biblical worldview. This is the, the purpose of the, the repetition of these rhythms of worship, was to give them a biblical worldview. And so not only did the, the reenactment of this wilderness sojourn every year shape their worldview, it, it made the story their own. 
descendants of those who were sustained through the wilderness, they entered into that experience of their forefathers every year at this festival. It reinforced the truths that Israel learned from the way that God had delivered them out of Egypt. And then they planted that in their own land. So these these rhythms of worship, they were reenacted, they were repeated, and they were teaching them not only how God acted for them in the past, it also impressed on them and informed them how God would continue to act in the present and the future. So do you see how these rhythms of worship are important? The, the repetition of remembering how God acts. They were like planting seeds in the, the gardens of their minds. This, is, this was reminding them how God had delivered in the past, how God had provided, how God had been faithful And then they experienced those truths in their own lives, and it exploded. The truth just blossomed and exploded. And this would then continue to inform them how God would continue to act in the future. So they needed these reminders. God knew they needed these reminders. That's why he gave them to them. They needed this repetition of remembering who God is, how God acts, and who they are with him. So, How are they going to help these fearful exiles remain true to their identity? By focusing on these rhythms of worship. That's what we do too. You you are experiencing that as well. That's why we gather every single week. That's why the liturgical flow of our our Sunday gatherings are are purposeful in, in, in a certain way. That's why we have a liturgical calendar that repeats every single year. Advent, Christmas, Lent, Ash Wednesday. Like if you've been to an Ash Wednesday service, you've been to all of them. It's the same thing over and over again. We have these repetition, these rhythms of worship. Not because, well, it gives us something to do, but because it forms us. John Tyson says there's no formation without repetition. There's no formation without repetition. What are the rhythms of worship in your life? If worshiping God is the primary response to a fully restored life, if worshiping God is the proper response to fear, to intimidation, to temptation, if it's our first task, what are the rhythms of worship in your life? Firstly, are you engaging with, with your church, with your, with your church's liturgical rhythms of worship? Sunday gatherings, missional community, our church calendar, these, these ways that, that form us, the prayer Zooms, prayer gatherings, are you there for that? Those are forma- formative, repetitive things. But also, what are the rhythms of worship in your daily life? Do you have regular, repetitive, unmovable rhythms of worship in your life? Ask it in another way. What's shaping your worldview? Something is shaping your worldview, brothers and sisters. It's being shaped, but by what? Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, the news, conversations with your friends. Or will you let God shape your worldview? Will you have a biblical worldview? He does it mainly through biblical liturgy. So these these people worshipped as it is written. 
They let God's word inform the way they worshipped, the way they were being shaped. And that's exactly what our church is trying to do for you. We, we regularly preach the Bible to give you your dogma and your narrative, your truth and your story. We have, we have two primary symbolic reenactments of that, of that truth, of that dogma and that narrative, and baptism and the Lord's Supper, right? They're reenactments of those things. And we worship together regularly, reading God's Word, praying God's Word, singing God's Word, preaching God's Word, seeing God's Word and the baptism and the Lord's Supper. This is all about building a biblical worldview. And then in your personal life, do you have intentionality as you're continuing to build that biblical worldview? Receiving that for 90 minutes on a Sunday probably isn't enough. We need repetitive biblical rhythms of worship in our lives if we want to maintain and remember our identity in Christ. These rhythms of worship are ingraining in us who God is, how He acts, who we are in Him, and how we can expect Him to continue to act for us in the present and the future. It's a great start from the first wave of returnees, right? It seems they've learned from their past mistakes. This is a returned community who are living in fear of the inhabitants of their land, but their response is not to cry out to Cyrus. It makes sense that they would, right? He's, he's sent them. It's his edict. He's given them money to go and do this. Why not go to him and say, hey, can you supply some, some protection for us as well? It's not what they do. It's not from seeking alliance from surrounding nations. They've tried that. didn't work. It's not to appeal for help from false gods that tried that. It didn't work. It seems they've learned to seek help from the only place that it can be found, from the Lord. They begin to worship, and they worship according to the law of Moses. So that's how they start. They don't begin by beginning the work, by, by the temple rebuild. They begin with worship. They set the altar in place so that they can begin to worship again, renew their rhythms of worship. That's their first priority, even before they even order supplies for the temple rebuild. The pragmatic thinkers in the room might be thinking, why not order those things? And then in the meantime, you can see it takes like seven months for that stuff to arrive. Order it, and then they're like, no, that's, we're not even going to put that on our radar. Our sole focus is on worship right now. That's profound, I think. Now, eventually, eventually, once their rhythms of worship are in place, they begin to build. Verse 7, they, they order the supplies. They do that just the way that the first temple, there's such continuity here. It's beautiful. And verse 8, seven months later, in the seventh, second month of the year, Zerubbabel, Joshua gather their kinsmen again. Uh, they appoint a team of priests to supervise the laying of the foundation of the temple. Now this is where I start to doubt their leadership. Like, here's a team of pastors to oversee this building project. I, don't, I think that's dubious. Um, only joking. It makes sense. The, the Levites would know how to, here's how the temple should be laid out and kind of direct those things. Um, that's one reason for the Levites uh, uh, supervising here. But also we see in verse 10, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple, the priests are there to lead the community in worship. Worship is their priority. Even in their building work, the foundation is laid, the priests come out with their, their, their garments and the trumpets and the, the choirs, the cymbals, 
They praise and they sang responsively, we're told in verse 11, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And they sang David's song, praising God for he is good, for his steadfast love endures towards Israel. When you read that, and if you were to go back and read 1 Chronicles 16, and the people here in Ezra 3 are just reenacting that scene in 1, Corinthians, 1 Chronicles 16. 1 Chronicles 16 is this scene where the ark comes into uh, the tent that David had made. And, and it's, it's the, uh, the Levites praise God. The Levites lead. They give thanks to God. In the first instance, Asaph sounded the cymbals. Here, the sons of Asaph are on the cymbals. Trumpets are blown. Trumpets are blown. They sang God's, uh, they sang David's song of thanksgiving. They sang David's song of thanksgiving. Isn't that interesting? They, they are reenacting that scene. Again, this is a, an intentional rhythm of worship. It's, it, if you only read Ezra 3, you think, oh, this amazing impromptu response of praise. No, this is planned out. This is thought out. This is a liturgical worldview forming rhythm of worship. And in this worship scene, they affirm that God, his love endures forever because God has been faithful to them in the distant past with David. He's been faithful to them in their recent past and their own exodus, and they can trust him to continue to be faithful to them in the future. Isn't that amazing? These rhythms of worship, they are ingraining in them who God is, what he has done in the past, his faithfulness to their ancestors, and how they can trust him continue to continue to be steadfast in his love to us. This is a liturgical service. It's, and, and what is it producing? It's producing real present worship. Do you see that? So the, I think the cynic can look at this and say it's all planned out. It's, it's rehearsed. What's real about this? Yes, it's rehearsed. Yes, it's this remembrance. It's liturgical. It's this rhythm of worship that helps them remember who God is. But look at what it produces. The second part of 11. And all the peoples shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundations of the house of the Lord was laid. In their liturgy, they are remembering how God has been faithful in the past but then they're seeing how he's continuing to be faithful to them in the future and they burst forth in praise and confidence that he'll continue to be faithful in the future. His steadfast love endures forever. Isn't that amazing? And so you might be thinking, cool. Um, remind, remind me what this means for us. Like those rhythms of worship, that worldview building stuff, okay, I get that, but how is this connected to Jesus again? Remember, we started verse uh, week one by seeing that Jesus in the New Testament said, all of that Old Testament stuff is about me. It's, it's pointing to me. They are fulfilled in me. These are all foreshadows of Jesus. So all these things are fulfilled in Jesus. They find their fulfillment in him, which means the message of the New Testament, it enables us today to join in with this ancient community of returned exiles who praised God for all his past acts of redemption. They praised him for all of his faithfulness to them through history, and we get to join in that song of praise. 
Because of all those Old Testament patterns are fulfilled in the way Jesus lived and died. They're pointing to Jesus, and he fulfills them all. God has accomplished salvation in Jesus in the way that he fulfills those, those, festival, those festivals of Israel. They're fulfilled in him. Jesus fulfills that Levitical system of sacrifice. Jesus fulfills the ministry of the temple that they're building here. Jesus has fulfilled the, the exodus in his death. And in his resurrection, it inaugurates the return of us as exiles. So Christians have been, uh, are those who have been delivered from our bondage of sin and death by the death of Jesus. Paul calls him the Passover lamb. All of this points to Jesus All of the feasts, the sacrifices, the temple worship, they don't end with Jesus. They are fulfilled with Jesus. And it's in our worship of him that we continue in that song of praise. Christian Ezra 3.11 becomes your song. For he is good still. His steadfast love endures forever still, just the way it has always. That's our song. We continue that praise and thanksgiving. I think that's amazing. Like with Jesus, in some ways, everything has changed, right? Everything is fulfilled in him. No longer doing sacrifices and all of these things. But in some ways, nothing has changed. Just like these ancient exiles, our lives are all about worship and obeying. Worshiping God in spirit and truth, it's still the primary response to a fully restored life. Just as we come to a close here, and we've been longer, I prepared you for some anticlimactic endings, right? Here we go. Here's one of them in verse 12. The altar is set in place. Worship has begun. Rhythms of worship have resumed. The foundation of the temple is laid. Praise and thanksgiving erupt. Verse 12, but many of the priests and the Levites, the heads of fathers' houses, these old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they they saw the foundation of the house being laid. Though many shouted for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of joyful shouts from the sound of people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. What a strange, anticlimactic sound, right? Shouts of joy mingled with loud weeping. And it seems that these old men who were familiar with the first temple... They could see from the the foundation that was laid here that this temple, it wouldn't be quite as magnificent as the first one. Notice from here on out, there's no mention of the Ark of the Covenant anymore. It's probably gone. Without an Ark, what's the temple? And even the scene here, this crowd is is less than 50,000, whereas they came out of Egypt stronger than a million. Like They've been left few in number after exile, just as God had promised in Deuteronomy 4, they've been decimated in a sense. And why have they been left so pitifully reduced? Because of sin. They've sinned against God. They had broken His covenant. They had been unfaithful, and they have reaped what they sowed. 
Sin had all but demolished them. So they're experiencing that unfinished hope. This is a staging post, not a final destination, right? The, the weeping, it shows us that while the people had been restored to the land, these glorious prophetic hopes are not fully coming to pass yet. The, 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 the desert isn't blooming. The, the Messiah isn't reigning. Jerusalem isn't being exalted. There's a sense here in which they've already seen these prophecies fulfilled, but they haven't seen them fully realized. But remember what the story is doing. It's pointing the reader forward. It's telling the reader, keep watching, keep reading, because greater fulfillments are coming. Keep holding on, keep reading, keep watching. Those fulfillments of those promises are, are on the horizon. The, the consummation of those promises is, is still ahead. So although they've started well here, don't miss out on the lesson from the weeping at the foundation of the temple that sin will still endanger you. Sin will ruin your life. Sin can still steal your joy. Even though God restores us, until he comes again and wipes away every tear from every eye, you will still feel the consequences of sin. Sin will make it so though you worship, you will still weep. So, hate sin. Take dealing with sin seriously. Do you want fullness of joy? Flee temptation. Do you want unmixed gladness? Resist the devil. Do you want to know how to overcome sin in your life? Worship. Confession, really important, right? Accountability with a, a brother or sister, incredibly important. Yes to all of that, but most importantly, worship. Find satisfaction in God. Have rhythms of worship in your life that will lead you to finding satisfaction in God alone, to taste and see that He is good. You see, worship is all about a desire to know God, right? To, to be in His presence, to walk with Him all of our days and that's this desire that will help us defeat sin, overcome sin. Sin's been defeated, but to overcome it in our here and now. The safest place in the world to be is in obedient worship of God, because to worship God in obedience to His Word is to be in His presence, abiding in His presence, being with Him. Are you afraid? Make worshiping God in spirit and truth your first priority. Let's stand and pray. And Father, we, and we just thank you again for doing it all. And you've done it all, Lord. We have been, we were dead in our sins, completely without hope. But by your grace, because of your great love, 
You're rich in mercy, Lord. You have done it all. You've brought us from death to life. 